Good evening, and welcome to the Skills Workshop. Uh, we're going to focus today on managing bleeding complications for partial nephrectomy. Uh, and we're so glad uh, so many of you have chosen to join us. Uh, I know there's lots of places you could be to spend your time, but we hope that you find this to be of value. So uh, for those who are not aware, uh, MUSIC is the Michigan Urological Surgery Improvement Collaborative. Uh, we're a consortium of urologists and urology practices throughout the state of Michigan uh, that aims to improve the quality and cost efficiency of urologic care. Uh, we've been in existence for over 10 years at this point, and really our initial mission uh, and ongoing mission has been to make Michigan number one for urologic care. Uh, this year, we've uh, re-examined our purpose and, and uh, come up uh, with a fresh purpose statement that uh, we really uh, feel uh, encapsulates uh, why we exist. We are a community that partners to improve patients' lives by inspiring high-quality care through data-driven best practices, education, and innovation. So uh, in 2023, uh, what's the state of music? Well, we have uh, 46 participating practices across Michigan, uh, which includes about 90% of the urologists in our state. Uh, we have 15 patient advocates. You can see we have a lot of uh, patients that have been included in our registry, uh, approaching 100,000 prostate biopsies. Uh, and uh, with relevance to this seminar today, almost 5,000 patients uh, with newly diagnosed renal masses. Um, we're also beginning to look outside of Michigan. Uh, we call it outdoor music, and we have uh, multiple participating sites, as you'll see here, uh, at this point all across the East Coast. Uh, and so we're really excited uh, about the progress we're making and hopefully the contributions we're making in the field of urology. So uh, Music Kidney is one of the three uh, arms that we have at present. And uh, again, we focus on T1 renal mass care. Uh, we have six patient advocates, 20 participating practices, uh, and we're starting to really uh, get our QI initiatives humming at this point. We've got over 10 manuscripts, um, uh, and you can find those uh, throughout uh, the literature, as you can uh, see here, um, both on development of the collaborative, uh, as well as now our findings with respect to um, imaging, uh, benign renal masses, uh, uh, guideline concordance, uh, and other uh, topics of interest. I think maybe more important are the resources we now have available uh, to practitioners as well as to patients. Uh, we've got a guidebook here, a roadmap for management of T1 renal masses that we feel uh, really is helpful in the clinic and outside of it. Uh, we have provider-facing materials and patient-facing materials. You can access them via the QR code you see on the screen or by going to the Music Urology website. So we'd encourage you to use them as uh, if you find them of benefit. So uh, today uh, we have uh, the privilege of having uh, a number of specialists uh, in the management of renal masses. Uh, we are pleased to have uh, Michael Steifelman from Hackensack University Medical Center as our uh, visiting and uh, keynote speaker. Uh, and then uh, on, he, together with Dr. Rogers, will present uh, largely as this uh, workshop continues. Uh, and then you'll see the remainder of the panelists below. 
uh, including myself, Brian Seifman from Michigan Institute of Urology, Brad Rosenberg from Comprehensive Urology, Alice Sumergen, uh, now at Michigan Medicine, uh, and we're especially pleased that uh, Andy Vartanian will be with us um, from Precision uh, Interventional Radiology to share uh, his perspective as well. So uh, the agenda, uh, I'm going to talk briefly about the partial nephrectomy outcomes we see across music, uh, and then uh, Dr. Rogers and Dr. Stifelman will present uh, some videos, uh, and then the panelists will discuss, and we would really uh, love to hear questions um, from you as a participant, uh, and you can put, put those through to the chat and so that our panelists can uh, answer them and discuss them uh, on four different areas. Management of intraoperative bleeding, techniques for clamping and tumor resection, management of bleeding after unclamping, uh, and management of postoperative bleeding. So briefly, uh, what are the outcomes that we see across music kidney? Well, first of all, uh, if we look provider by provider, uh, we see uh, some pretty significant variability in the utilization of partial nephrectomy for T1 renal masses. 68% of surgeries overall are partials, so 32% are radical nephrectomies. And we can see practice level variation from 35 to 90% and provider level variation from about 30 to 95%. Breaking that down further, if we look at only T1A renal masses, so four centimeters and smaller, uh, we see that the majority of uh, surgeons are performing greater than 80% uh, partial nephrectomies for these masses, uh, but about 35% are doing partial nephrectomies in less than 80% of cases. For T1B lesions, we see much more variability. Uh, so you can see that the median uh, across our surgeon-level data is about 40% as a rate of partial nephrectomy for T1B tumors, but there's really significant variation ranging from 0 to 90%. Now, in part, uh, we're sure that this is due to uh, complexity. Uh, and so again, here's our overall rates of uh, partial nephrectomy used for T1A and T1B tumors. And when you see this broken down by renal score, uh, you can see, uh, as would be expected, higher rates of partial nephrectomy used for the lower complexity tumors. So uh, for low complexity T1A tumors, you can see the rate across the collaborative is 95%. But for high complexity T1B tumors, partial nephrectomy is only being used 20% of the time, probably appropriately, uh, as we can see here. So how about outcomes? So we... Uh, in music uh, for years have used an acronym of NOTES, Notable Outcomes and Trackable Events After Surgery. You can see for uh, kidney surgery, the ones that uh, we've chosen to focus on. Uh, and for the purposes of uh, today's talk, uh, really we're, uh, I guess overall, we can look that there's low rates of perioperative complications. Uh, so you can see uh, that uh, just over 8% of patients have a prolonged length of stay. Uh, and in emergency, visit, emergency department visit in less than 3% of patients, readmission in less than 4% of patients. But really for today's uh, discussion, uh, we'll look at how many have significant bleeding. It's about 5% of patients overall. Uh, and if we break that down uh, by um, tumor size and complexity, as you'd expect, um, the T1A low complexity tumors have lowest rates of concern here for bleeding. So uh, what did we do uh, about this 
we've started uh, to do some video review. Uh, and back in September, uh, at our collaborative-wide meeting, we had uh, a peer workshop. And really, we've done this before. We've done it with uh, prostate cancer and prostatectomy. Um, and our goal is really uh, to get surgeons in the room together to discuss, uh, to review their own videos, uh, and have discussions about uh, the techniques they're employing, uh, suggestions uh, from peers uh, about uh, skills that they're demonstrating, maybe some alternative approaches. Uh, and one of the things that we can benefit uh, within music is we have all the outcomes data. So we can really link um, the videos uh, and the surgeon performance there with what their surgical outcomes are. Uh, so uh, we had eight uh, individual uh, partial nephrectomy surgeons uh, present their videos. We had about 60 participants overall. Uh, and there was universal agreement that this was a, a useful uh, a way to spend our time and review. Uh, we also successfully recruited 24 people uh, to review uh, videos moving forward. And you'll see some of the benefit of that today. So um, we had 30 videos submitted from 15 surgeons. Uh, those were edited uh, and um, put in a format so that reviewers could provide objective and subjective feedback on six different steps of partial nephrectomy. We had over 380 reviews collected. Uh, we look forward to compiling that information uh, and uh, presenting it back to each of the individual surgeons. Uh, but for today, uh, one of the additional benefits is we we're able to identify some clips that would be helpful uh, and that we can work through uh, together as a group. So uh, with that, I'll turn it over to Dr. Rogers and Dr. Stifelman uh, for the remainder of our time. Uh, Craig, take it away. Thank you, Brian. I'm so excited to be able to uh, talk today about a topic that we've had a lot of interest in uh, from music, the idea of uh, how to manage bleeding during partial nephrectomy. Um, so I'm going to be showing videos and um, We'll start with that with uh, and how this will be organized is bleeding before we go on clamp. You'll see bleeding on clamp and then managing bleeding after coming off clamp. Um, so first, let's start with a video of uh, this is going to show. Well, I'm going to leave it to suspense. So, so we have the right sided case, renal vein, and just during dissection. That happened. And I'm going to show one more time. Look closely. It goes fast. The scissors are moving, dissecting the artery. We zoom in. We have a thermal injury and bleeding. So just ask yourself, what would you do here? Significant bleed on the vein during a partial nephrectomy. Are you going to increase the pneumo? Are you going to um, convert, staple, put pressure, et cetera? So go through your mind what you would do, because we're going to be talking about this most of the uh, webinar of what our next steps are. So for this, and this is me, by the way, so I'm, I'm grabbing and just trying to get control. We're communicating with anesthesia, letting, we, letting them know we have an issue, switching out the scissors to a needle driver. There's a proline suture, a rescue suture on the back table, and, you're, um, and then that comes in. That's anchored with a clip. And then I'm tying that, and then uh, we proceeded with the partial nephrectomy. So it was just a controlled grab, hold, take your time, and be prepared and have a suture available. Um, 
you're going to see Dr. Stifelman uh, show a very similar uh, management, and I think he's going to show this rescue suture uh, in even more detail. Um, so just some of the concepts from this. Vascular injury anywhere, whether it's the vena cava, the renal vein, et cetera, um, some options are put pressure on it, hold it, put a sponge on it, increase the pneumo pneumoperitoneum and wait. If it's a small venous bleed, they'll usually stop. Bigger venous bleeds like this, you need to grab it. Um, time is of the essence because if you don't grab it quickly, then you've got blood in the field and you don't know where it's bleeding from. So try to occlude it and then get exposure. Hold it, let the suction get uh, um, clear that field, dissect more if you need to, and then decide how you want to control it. Is it with a clip or having a rescue suture available? Um, and then in the bottom here, this is a multi-center safety checklist of, um, that we published uh, that was published just going through uh, different algorithms of both arterial and venous bleeding injury. Okay, at this point, I want to turn the time over to our keynote speaker, Dr. Michael Stifelman, to give his insights on this similar topic. Um, Dr. Stifelman is just a master at taking complex surgeries and distilling them down to key take-home messages. So with that, Dr. Stifelman. Greg, thanks so much uh, for having me and inviting me. Really excited to be here and talking about managing bleeding complications for partial nephrectomy. So let's get right into it. Let's talk about bleeding management for preclamp. And I think something really important is just making sure you sound silly, but actually identify the right vessel. So I'm gonna show you a video here where we're trying to isolate the renal artery through a retroperitoneal approach. And as you look at this, you see how the artery, it's very uh, you know, um, circuitous. It's not going straight up to the kidney. And what we realized is that when we were doing the retroperitoneal approach, we actually went underneath the kidney. And what we were dissecting out was not the main left renal artery. It was actually the SMA. And so here you are, we're seeing us identify the actual artery and it's going straight up into the kidney because the kidney's on stretch. And then you see sort of the right in the background how we went completely underneath the kidney beyond the aorta to see the SMA. So again, I think really important point there, uh, always make sure you've got the right vessels because if you have clamped the wrong vessel, you're going to have a lot of bleeding. Here's an example, I think you may have shown this too, of some arcing from the scissor to the renal vein. So um, again, right there, you saw some arcing. Now we try to bipolar it um, and you get all we did was make it worse. And probably the reason, one of the reasons is, is that the bipolar had a lot of char on it. We didn't put any electrolube on it and it just made the injury worse. So now we have a, a hole in the, in the renal vein and now you're going to see us using a rescue suture, a 4-0 proline RB or an SH rescue suture, whatever you're comfortable with. This has to be an RB to close the vein. And the reason why we like to put that lap or tie or a wet clip is that you can hold it up, as you can see here, one-handedly. Now, this is an uh, where we use two needle drivers. I think today I'd probably only need or use one needle driver to do this. So my fourth arm is giving the exposure. I'm using the lapper tie um, and then to be able to throw a one-handed suture. And at the end, we, fi we finally close it. So I think having this 4-0 uh, 
uh, proline, Vicryl, either on an SH or RB is really good to have. Um, I think, again, a take-home message, be careful with the monopolar because it can arc. Bipolar, uh, when you use it, make sure you, you occasionally put some electrolube so it doesn't get sticky and char. And then you have the rescue suture uh, we talked about. Here's an interesting case. Um, we've identified the artery in the vein. And this is, as you can see at the lower part of the screen, a very hyalur tumor. There is the ultrasound. It's completely endophytic. It's sitting right on top of the uh, main artery and vein. And here we are trying to do like a Gilvernay maneuver. We're trying to identify the capsule of the tumor. And here we are, you know, just dissecting out the bipolar. And then, oops, this happens, right? And this is a pretty large area of bleeding. And I think, you know, number one is you've always got to be very careful around these hyalur tumors. And at this point, we've got to make a decision, right? We've got a large opening in the renal vein. And I think the decision is, do we just go on clamp with the artery or do you go on clamp with the artery and vein? And now typically I only clamp the artery, but here would be a situation where I would clamp the artery and vein. And so here we are, we've already dissected this out. So again, really important before you start working on the actual tumor itself, make sure you have the artery and vein dissected out. There, there we're putting on the artery. I clamp the vein to make sure there's no backflow. That way I know I got it completely. And here you see me dissecting it out. And right here, I'm actually, uh, you can see the opening in the renal vein. And if I didn't clamp the vein, that would have been really difficult. Now I'm taking a proline suture because I have such good visualization I'm, and I have two hands. Uh, I am not putting a lapartite on it and I'm closing the vein first. Um, and then what you can do is, at this point is you can come off on the renal vein clamp and just have the arterial clamp to make sure you got it all, um, or you can just continue the way you have it. So, you know, we've taken care of all the vessels at the base. Uh, here we are finishing up our uh, closure um, of the tumor, of the uh, defect itself. We've ran a, a barb suture on the anterior horn as well as the posterior horn. And then that's really the case. So again, um, if you have a large opening in the renal vein, clamp the renal vein and decrease the risk of air embolism. It's easier to identify the walls of the vein and it's improved visualization for selective ligation. And then again, when you have these hollow tumors, YV renorphate. So I think those are a couple of great examples to show. Uh, why don't we go to the panel and start taking some questions and answers? Thanks so much, uh, Drs. Rogers and Steifman. Those are great examples. How about some initial thoughts uh, from Dr. Seepin? What did you see there? Uh, how do you feel about that? Anything you would have done differently? Uh, well, first thing I noticed is that uh, changing the underwear, I think that was very important. Because <laughs> uh, when you have big bleeds like that, certainly, you know, definitely causes some sphincter tightening. Um, but I think that really, you know, uh, what was pointed out is that, especially with Dr. Rogers' uh, video, I think you have to find the vessel, grab it, and put pressure on it. So if you can hold it and control it that way, I think that's ideal. Um, Dr. Stuckman, when you had yours, you already you hadn't clamped anything yet. So going back, you'd already had it dissected out, which was obviously very important, and it was very clean dissection. So when you needed to clamp, you were ready to do so and could repair it. Both were, did a great job with it. Yeah, one thing that was new for me, uh, and I'm glad for the discussion, and maybe Brad, you can comment on this as well. 
Uh, I've had 5-oproline as my suture, and I don't routinely have Laprotize available in my ORs anymore. Um, what do you think about the clips on the suture, or what, what do you use for a rescue suture? Who's that to you, Brian? I was asking uh, Brad Rosenberg, uh, but you're on mute still. Sorry about that. Um, I don't usually have a rescue suture either. Um, I just, I've been able to just manage it with a proline. Um, like, you know, I guess just without it. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I would do the same thing. Like it was a little, you know, I mean, if, if you can clamp, that's great. I mean, in, um, in Craig's case, I would have just done the same thing. I just like usually take, like a pro grasp or something and just, or the fenestrate and just pinch it closed and then just, you know, settle down. Like I said, just take a break, suction up the blood, you know, kind of gather your wits about you. And uh, I usually use a 5-0 proline as well. Um, I would just ask for that and just throw a little figure of eight. Now, again, I mean, it sort of depends on how big the hole is. I mean, it sort of also depends. I mean, if you have a, of a very large hole, I mean, let's say you have a mass that's, you know, large and you say, well, I was kind of debating between a radical or a partial anyways. I mean, you might say, well, maybe you do that or, you know, if you, if you can't close it in timely fashion or close it well. Great. Thanks. Uh, we have a question from the chat. Uh, Kevin Ginsburg, one of our uh, music urologists and leads on the, on the prostate program. Maybe Michael, you can help with this one. Do you have concerns about putting clips on the renal vein while controlling bleeding with that stitch? Do you feel that you could still staple safely if needed? I think that's a great question. Um, so, you know, I think before we get to that, I just want to make sure a couple of take home messages on how to avoid this, right? And so, the one thing I don't know if we really hit on well is the reason that happened, and it was almost the same exact injury, my first injury I showed and, and Dr. Rogers was that there was arcing from the bipolar. I mean, from the, from the scissor. So number one is don't use monopolar scissor on the hymen, okay? Whenever possible, use bipolar, cut sharply, don't use monopolar scissors. I've even seen it arc to an artery and have a disaster. So if there's, try to avoid it. Um, number two is, I try to point out, is don't try to bipolar the vein. It's never going to work. And I tried that a couple of times in my life, thinking, oh, this will be easy, and all I've done is made it worse. So those are things that to help you avoid doing it. You know, and now in terms of fixing it, I think Brian said this, as, as well as um, the rest of the team, really just get a, um, a clamp on it, get a, a, some sort of uh, control of it with either, a, you know, your needle driver, your bipolar, whatever you have, just grab it. And then so, and then you can decide. Once you have control, I don't think you really need necessarily a laparotomy on the end of it. I think it helps, um, but I don't think it, it's necessary. Um, but say you were to use a laparotomy or you use a wet clip to help you, you know, create that one-handed suturing that you want to do to get it because it's really big. And now you've decided, you know, I just want to take the kidney out. I, I don't think I want to manage this uh, with a partial anymore. Now I have to put a stapler over it. I think you have two options. Um, one is um, to just put the stapler above where you made your hole 
And if you notice, the majority of the time these holes happen right at the crotch, right between the art, the vein and, and the cava. And, and Craig Roger has a great video of that about how important it is to make sure that when you take the renal vein, you give a little stump. So I think that's one way to handle it. And the other way you can handle it simply is just cut out the, you know, I think just before you put the staple and cut out the clip and just and move on. Thanks. Uh, we have another question in the chat, Kershid Ghani. Another uh, music uh, urologist and lead of, of our team says, how about air embolism? Uh, is that a real risk? Have you seen that? Maybe Craig, you wanna handle that one? Um, it is a risk. I haven't personally seen it, but I think if you're running a, you know, if you're, if you're trying to manage a major hole in the cava just by cranking up the pneumo to 20 or something, I think you're begging for an air embolism. That is not the solution. It's gonna be grabbing it, pressure, and so it, um, not just jacking up the pneumo. Yeah, I I have never seen one, and I know you guys have done a fair amount of IVC work, Michael. Got, yeah, I, I have. You know, and I'll tell you where I saw it. Um, I was it was a solitary kidney. It was a patient who had a renal vein thrombus going into a segment of the renal vein. So we had to do a partial, and I, I may even have a video of this. And I can certainly share it with you guys. And when we started to open up the vein and we pulled out the thrombus from that segment, because we just couldn't do a partial, we lost pressure, we, had, we CO2 crashed, and we had an air embolism. Now we got very lucky, we closed it, we hyperventilated, we cranked up the oxygen, the patient did fine, we didn't have to put a swan gants in or anything like that. But I do think it's important. So I think a take home message I would also take from this is that, if you are expecting to get into a large vein branch while you're cutting this thing out, um, put a clamp on the vein. That will prevent that from happening. And that's why the first thing I did here, not just for exposure, but I also, when I saw I had a big hole in the vein, I said to myself, I need to clamp the artery in the vein because I don't want to have an air embolism as I'm trying to you know, get, the, get this hyalur tumor out. So I, it can happen. Most of the time, I mean, my N of one, we just hyperventilated and we cranked up the oxygen. It got better. I will tell you at the end of the case, I did put a TEE in and I did, uh, a, I did a study of the, of the heart to make sure there was nothing in the atrium or the ventricle on the right side. It was negative. So then we woke the patient up. I think that's a reasonable you know, safety thing to do. But um, we're also, I mean, uh, uh, Brian, what do you do? I mean, do you clamp the vein typically? Um, right. the That's where I wanted to take the panel to. Um, you know, I am, I think like you, Michael, I am artery only all the time. Um, the time I'm thinking about vein is if it's a real high complexity tumor and I'm, you know, positive I'm going to get into the collecting system and might get into a significant venous branch in there. So I'd say, you know, renal E or whatever, N3 or E3, N3, that's when I, I think vein. So maybe never isn't the right word for me, but I would say it's, you know, less than 10% of my cases that I'll put a vein on. Anyone else? Alice, you want to come in on that for your cases? Yeah, same thing. I mean, I, I always have the whole hilum dissected out just in case you do need to throw a, a clamp on the vein. Um, but typically we'll only clamp the artery unless I know it's a very hyalur tumor. I know that, you know, I can see on the imaging that the vein's running right next to the tumor and I might get into it. Um, then those are the only circumstances I'll clamp the vein. Brian Seifman, how about you? Artery, artery, vein? 
I used to do artery and vein, and then I uh, stopped doing the vein mostly because I felt like I was getting more bleeding. Um, you know, maybe I'm missing a small branch of the artery or something like that, or the clamps just aren't from, uh, completely occluding the artery. So I've switched to just vein, unless, like you said, it's very complex, but, you know, that's not very common. Most of these are exophytic tumors more than not. Great. We have another uh, question from the chat, uh, which I think we'll get to later, but maybe just to talk here, Dr. Peterson Marrera is asking us, when do you decide to convert the surgery? So maybe, Brian, you're still talking. Would you have converted on what you saw there immediately, or would you have, uh, you know, after the underwear change, uh, kept trying to fix it? I, I think that with uh, uh, Craig's case, I probably would have tried to fix it because it was a smaller hole. Uh, I think that with uh, Michael's case, I probably would have just converted and just done a radical at that point. It seemed like a very large tumor. Obviously, I didn't see the films, but large, hyalur, very challenging. It's high risk of nephrectomy anyway. If that one, I probably just would have taken the kidney out. Right. Well, let's uh, move on to our next set of videos. We're going to look at uh, bleeding while on clamp uh, and making decisions about is our clamping adequate and, and what do we need to do. So uh, let me turn it back to Dr. Rogers uh, and Dr. Steifman for their videos here. So now we're going to talk a little bit about bleeding management while on clamp. Now, some of the principles we talked about before is making sure you identify uh, the you know all the arteries going to the kidney are, are super important. Um, so you can do that. I think having a good scan prior is is super helpful. Um, so you know how many arteries are going to the to the kidney itself to make sure you clamp it. I think there are a couple of tricks you can also use to make sure you do have the entire kidney clamped. Um, if that's what you choose to do, to do a full arterial clamp. One trick that I'll use is once, right before I go on clamp, I'm going to inject two cc's of ICG into the IV. And once it's flushed, I wait about 10 seconds or 10 heartbeats, and then I put the clamp on. And what that does, it allows you to make sure that the kidney itself is ischemic. In other words, there should be no green, nothing lighting up in the kidney. Whereas, and you'll see the other organs surrounding it turn green. So that's a really easy, straightforward way to say, yeah, I'm on clamp. Some other ways you can do this is you can go ahead and you take your ultrasound probe back and you can actually ultrasound the kidney or at least the area that you want to excise the tumor and make sure using color Doppler or uh, bipolar Doppler, that there's no blood flow in it. So I believe that to be a little bit more difficult to do. Um, it takes a little more time, but another option if you don't want to use ICG. And a third option, if you want to make sure that you really have good ischemia, is literally just take a grasper and put it over the vein. And if the vein starts to bulge and fill up, the renal vein, then you probably have missed an artery, and that's why it's filling up. But if it stays nice and flat, when you put the clamp uh, on the renal vein, you got a pretty good idea that you clamp the uh, the entire kidney. So I think before you start cutting into the kidney, consider one of those three things to make sure you have a uh, completely clamped when you're doing a full clamp. So here's an example where we didn't do that, okay? Um, and so this is an example, and I'm gonna just stop this for a second, where we went ahead 
And we thought we clamped the entire kidney. It's a very heavy patient. You can see from this, a lot of toxic fat. There's some blood in the area already, making the visualization not perfect. And as we're cutting the, the tumor out, we start to see bleeding. So the first thing you wanna do is you wanna determine, is this arterial bleeding or this venous bleeding? So that's number one. And if in either scenario, if you've already clamped the vein, again, I typically don't do that, but if you clamp the artery and vein, step number one is just take the, the, the clamp off the vein. That will often fix the problem. If it's arterial clamping, you then have to make a decision pretty quickly. Am I gonna go searching for the other artery that I missed? Or am I just going to sew and cut as I as I um, as I remove the tumor? And if it's a vein clamp, typically all you need to do is put a little pressure on the vein with your suction irrigator, and that will fix the problem and you should be able to maintain visualization. So again, venous bleeding is almost always able to control with a little bit of pressure, uh, whereas arterial bleeding that's not going to be controlled with pressure. It'll be multiple arterials bleeding as you cut it. So you've got to make that decision: Do I go ahead? and look for the uh, accessory artery that you missed or put another clamp on the artery if you think the bulldogs aren't good or do what I'm gonna show you here. So here's an example where I started cutting, I saw some bleeding. So I switched over to um, a needle driver and there I see some more bleeding and that's brisk bleeding, that's arterial bleeding. So then I went back to the needle driver and I sutured up that bleeding with a running 3-0 barb suture. And then once I get some more visualization, I got that control, I continue to cut. Um, and now I'm at the point where I've got control of the bleeding because there was an accessory artery that I missed. And then now that I've got control of the bleeding, I can see things much better. I'm able to continue and complete the excision of the tumor. But I would not do this unless I had this sort of visualization. So you either do that by looking for another artery um, or you do that by suturing as you cut. And so you're switching off suture, get control, cut some more, go back to the suture. Either one is fine. And then there's just taking me a biopsy. So again, take home messages. Um, if it's bleeding and you have a vein, clamp on the vein, take it off. If it's arterial, you either got to look for another artery or start considering suturing and cutting. Um, in, a, in a sequential fashion. If it's a vein, almost always just a little bit of pressure will help you and will fix the problem. All right, so I'm gonna bring it over to um, Dr. Rogers right now. And I know he has some great thoughts uh, regarding this issue as well. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Stifelman. So continuing on the theme of bleeding while on clamp, um, one important aspect is prevention and being and preparation. So we have a checklist that we use before we go on clamp for partial nephrectomy. This is in the operating room. We go through this every time. And uh, all of these are there because they have implications. If one of these is not done, it could uh, definitely have implications for bleeding and how that's managed. So I visually confirm that all the sutures uh, are available, that they're made correctly. Confirm that the trocars have not worked their way out of the fascia where we'd have difficulties getting the needle driver in to sew uh, any bleeders. We make sure the needle drivers haven't expired, that we have uh, adequate CO2 for insufflation, that all the clamps uh, are available that we're going to need, and uh, that the staff uh, has not is not changing during clamp time where there might be some confusion as to where sutures are. Um, 
This is a video, anonymous video from our video review project um, that's going to show a left-sided robotic partial nephrectomy. This is using Scanlon Bulldogs, which I, I love using these to have surgeon control. Um, this surgeon is using two clamps to help ensure occlusion of the renal artery and then is going to clamp the renal vein as well. So you see the venous clamp come on. And then, um, and after clamping, then starting the resection. Now the, you look at the kidney, it's not totally blanched and white, but um, we'll see what happens once uh, we start cutting into this. And I'll skip ahead just a little bit. Um, so as we get in, we start seeing just a little bit of venous oozing. We expect that, right? Because the um, the vein has been clamped. So that blood that was trapped in with the venous clamping has to get out. But you expect that to kind of, um, you know, die down a little bit once you get going. And so we'll keep going, keep going. What we're going to notice here is that as the resection continues, and I think this is a good job by whoever's assisting here of keeping the suction right at the lip to push down so the surgeon has a better angle of sight to the base of the defect. Now advancing the suction a little bit more, trying to improve exposure because there is some venous bleeding here, right? It hasn't totally stopped. Um, we're sort of cutting into, you can see the outline of the, of the kidney, but clearly there's venous bleeding like right there so what do you do at this point? If you have venous bleeding, if you have bleeding that's compromising your exposure, you could stop, go and look for another vessel that might need to be clamped, maybe an upper pole branch. Um, you could try to sew here. Another option, as long as you can make out adequately the contour of the tumor, just work efficiently and get it out, and uh, and then you can start sewing. But we, we certainly don't want to compromise the cancer control here because there is the tumor coming into view there. Um, so we're kind of at this fine balance where we can see, you know, but um, maybe not seeing quite as well as we would like. Um, so, so how do you, you know, you have to determine how you're going to manage that, if you're going to keep going or if you're going to stop at that point or put some compression on it and... Uh, and one thing to consider is we've clamped the vein, right? So if there's engorgement of that kidney from an unrecognized upper pole branch, possibly taking the clamp off the vein at this point could potentially improve exposure. Um, okay, so this continues and uh, and at that point, we're, uh, you know, the surgeon here is beyond the tumor. And once that's out, they're going to go back and sew in a typical fashion. So moving on, just this idea of unclamping the vein or recognizing when there might be um, a vessel by looking at engorgement. So this is a right-sided partial nephrectomy, clamping the artery. And notice when the vein is clamped, I want you to look at the engorgement that we're going to see on the vein. So notice it doesn't flatten out. Now, the reason for that in this case is that there's a gonadal vein inserting into it. Notice it now compresses, it's not engorged. But that's the same thing you're looking for if there was an unclamped artery. Um, if you see it full and engorged, then potentially you're gonna get into bleeding when you start cutting the tumor out. And then you know, the way to manage that is just take the clamp off the vein. And if I'm unclamping the vein, I would just put that clamp on the artery uh, as a second clamp. 
Um, so just to review bleeding on clamp, is there a missed vessel? Um, is there a vein venous clamp that can be removed and put on the artery? And then, um, I keep a, I'll show this later, but I keep a long bulldog clamp that can be used to go across the artery and vein to help shut the kidney down. And with that, I'll turn the time over to um, our uh, panel for live discussion. Thank you. You're muted, Brian. Lots to talk about uh, from the videos that we saw there. Uh, we have a first question from uh, Dr. Mahesh Desai uh, already, I think with respect to the second video, uh, talking about risk of positive margin in the presence of the bleeding uh, and really obscuring the vision. Uh, maybe Dr. Samurjan, you wanna comment on that second video? What what would your technique have been there? Yeah, for the, for the second video, I probably would have continued. You know, I think that, the tumor was, you know, fairly easy to see what the contour was. There was some discoloration of it. Um, you know, once you get control of the bleeding, you can always take a look back and see if there's, you know, any worth in taking uh, a margin from the base as a frozen section if you're really concerned about potentially leaving something behind. But I think the visualization was still okay in that second video, and the the assistant was doing a pretty good job of keeping up with the suctioning. Yeah. I other thoughts? Would anyone have done a different maneuver, take the vein clamp off or go or put a Satinsky across everything? I didn't that think it was that bad. I mean, you see that a lot. I mean, I could still see well enough. Sometimes, you know, it starts bleeding and you kind of just give it some time and then it sort of just dies down on its own. Um, but uh, yeah, but I definitely, I mean, the first thing I would do is I would have just taken the vein clamp off. Like Brian said earlier, I think if that vein clamps on, it bleeds more. Um, but I didn't think that was so bad. I could see pretty well. Yeah. Uh, we have a question here again, uh, Dr. Stifelman, uh, and this is from uh, Dr. Ginsburg. You've mentioned use a 3-0-V lock for a deep layer. Do you unclamp before doing your capsule layer to look for misbleeders before you close the kidney? So that's a, a great question. And I think that's um, a question I've, I've been asked over and over for about 20 years since we started showing robotic partial nephrectomy. And I think there are advantages and disadvantages. So the advantage of putting your capsular sutures in while you're on clamp is that the kidney is supple. It comes together much more easily. And that when you take the clamp off, you then get an extra component of compression through the tamponade effect. The fact that you're getting all that blood there and you've got your clips pretty close together. So for those reasons, I don't. Um, now, I, because of that, and I know that I'm not going to unclamp first, except the only time, I, I, there's always exception to the rules when it's a really hyalur tumor. So if it's a really hyalur tumor, I will unclamp first because I know there's a more of a risk. But because of that, what I'll do is I always control or close the collecting system individually with my, my uh, just a separate 3.0 vicral suture because the arteries are almost always parallel or, or right next to the opening of the collecting system. So I'll close the, the arterial branch, close the collecting system in one, do my second deep layer, and then bring it together. I will say, knock on wood, uh, I had used to have starting off when we started with bolsters about a two and a half to three percent pseudoaneurysm rate. 
I got myself down to about 1.4%. Um, and more recently, because I think we're just being much more careful as we're cutting it out. Um, and I think using Iris helped us a little bit as well, 3D modeling, we got down to a 0.3%. So um, that's my own take on it. But the disadvantages, obviously, is that if you come off clamp and you've got a lot of bleeding, um, you can fix it right there and then. So it makes me wonder, and I, you know, I, I have a lot of open surgery uh, experience and background that I brought to robotic partial, but we would always point suture for bleeders. So we would never run the base. Uh, and so my robotic practice really has not been to run the base. I know there are a lot of people who that is, you know, that's all you do is you run the base and then maybe you don't even need the second layer closure. Um, but like you, I want to close the collecting system if I've opened it and I want to close it specifically, but we have bipolar. I mean, we use bipolar, we have monopolar. We use that for all kinds of bleeding vessels. So why not using that for little arterial branches and sides uh, to me is what I do a lot of. Yeah, but I think those vessels are going to retract back. I, I don't. I think yeah. using a bipolar or a monopolar for a, a renal parenchymal and arterial vessel, for me, I've never had good success with that because right. as soon as you try to grab it, it retracts back, and now you end up having to put a suture anyway. So that's my and take. We may be, and I like it too. We may be discussing again the difference between a deep hilar tumor versus yeah. a more superficial. Yeah. I agree. Once you're in the deep hilum, you're going to have to control yeah. some things. Um, but then the other question I'd have for you and, and the other panelists is for the deep hyalur tumor is the reason that we're early in clamping because we still have in the back of our minds, we better finish our warm ischemia time in 20 minutes or 25 minutes or 30 minutes. Or is it, as you've said, um, you know, you feel you've done a, a more thorough job on the inside and you don't need to do the, uh, the second layer. I, I feel it's time pressure for me. I don't know if it's, it's what's making your decision. Um, so I guess I'll start, but I mean, I think I maybe first before going to me, we can hear from Bradley or yeah. uh, Brian or um, maybe Alice. Sounds great. Alice, what do you think? Yeah, for me, it's not usually a time pressure thing. I feel, you know, okay about clamp time. It doesn't, you know, usually take that much longer to put the Renorphy stitches in. But I, you know, like to be able to visualize the base. So if there is something that I miss, it's much easier to put a stitch, you know, preferentially in that area. Um, if it's still open before I've done the Renorphy stitches, because otherwise you could be, you know, kind of trying to dip into a deep crevice to find a bleeder that's left behind. So you, you're doing early unclamping mm -hmm. pretty routinely? Pretty routinely, unless the hilum's just not accessible. You know, if it's on the backside of the kidney, I've, I've flipped it and it's going to be, you know, time to get to the front of the hilum, take off the clamp and, you know, I'm not able to flash it and see it, then then maybe I'll just complete the renorphy at that time. Um, but if it's pretty accessible, then most of the time I'm doing early unclamping. So Alice, we're going to have to teach you retro. You never have to. I know. <laughs> that's, that's next on the list. Okay. Brad, early unclamping or unclamp after two layers are in? I always unclamp after the capsular sutures are in. Um, you know, that's just kind of always been my, my, uh, my way of doing it. Um, you know, I was watching a surgeon recently who he was 
struggling to get the edges together. And because uh, he had unclamped um, after the first layer, and it, it dawned on me right then why he was. And it was exactly what Dr. Steigelman was saying, is that the kidney had engorged, and he could not get the edges together, and he struggled for that. Um, and uh, But, yeah, when I, I, you know, typically my warm ischemia time, 15, 20, maybe 25 minutes tops um, to get, a, you know, I throw a, a deep – layer in just the running deep layer. I, you know, if I see the collecting system specifically, I may close it, but most of the time it's really small, if anything. So I just run a deep one, then I bring the capsule together and then I unclamp before I sort of put the laparatize on, like I'll, I'll put the hemolox on and kind of get it together pretty close. And then um, I'll take the clamp off and then kind of tighten it down with the laparatize. That just saves a, a minute or two, but. That, the timing seems to be fine with that. Right? Do it. So I'm just going to uh, bring one other point up because, you know, there are folks, and I, so I see this, I give ICG before and after. So before I make sure I'm on clamp and I give it after to make sure that I've got good ischemia, uh, good reperfusion of the kidney. When you put those uh, capsular sutures on, you're, you, get, you get a watershed error. You, you, you kill kidney. I mean, I, I'm, I see it every day. And there's a little piece of kidney that you're killing by doing that. I don't care. Okay. For me, it's better than taking out the kidney. I'm going to sleep at night. And so they've lost, you know, five millimeters of tissue. But one reason not to even put the capsular sutures on and to come off clamp and then just deal with all your suturing and literally leave the defect open like Dr. Sundrum does is to prevent that extra ischemia. Um, of, of some of some of the kidney and potentially save some function. I, I think it's an overplayed thing, just the way I think warm ischemia time is overplayed. I mean, Alice, do you care if it's 25 minutes or 30 minutes? I just want a good closure. Because as my fr good friend Sam Bonnie would say, it's a lot better than infinity. So <laughs> I think that's those are great points. Uh, there's a question from Dr. Ghani in the chat that says, uh, Dr. Shifman, how often do you use ICG for your cases? Only complex, or are you using it routinely? I, I'm like an ICG addict. I love ICG. I use ICG all the time. So I use it for every case to make sure I'm on clamp. And I do a lot of selective clamping as well still, despite no level one evidence out there. Um, I know there's no level one evidence. I tried to get level one evidence. There's zero, but I still do it. Um, so I've gotten used to doing that, but even though I'm doing a full arterial clamp, I use it. And I also, it just makes me feel good. And I come off clamp and give it a couple of CCs of IC and watch the whole kidney become you know, bright. I'm like, yeah, we're good. So I do use it. Um, and I find it helpful. I, I think I'm going to take a, a license again to just go back to open surgery days and compare it with robotic days. Um, it's really interesting how the most important thing of an open partial nephrectomy used to be getting those capsular sutures down and tight and tied and not breaking the sutures. And that was the key to the whole operation. And now we're to the point with robotics where we're not even sure you even need to get the capsular sutures in at all. Yeah. Uh, and so again, just pointing out how different fundamentally these operations are. And again, as I'm talking through, you know, yeah. point control deep in the kidney versus it seems like, you know, most robotic surgeons have really moved to running the base. And my concern was always AV fistulas and AV malformations from running the base. But if we're not seeing it, we're not seeing it, the proof is there. So um, 
maybe we'll leave it at that. Uh, unless Craig, you have any final words of wisdom before we get to the next section? Just one comment about running the base. Another value other than it's a little more efficient is when you're running the base, your left hand, if you're right-handed, can take that suture and pull on it and you can turn a concave defect into a flat defect. So the very vessels you're trying to sew kind of pop up into view. Um, so that's that's actually the reason why I do it. It just helps me see the vessels. Great. Well, let's move on and we can come back to more questions and uh, after we hear videos here on clamping techniques. So techniques for, uh, uh, for during the clamping. Okay, so our next topic will be techniques of clamping. And I wanna show some data from music uh, regarding clamping techniques and warm ischemia time. So this uh, pie chart off to the right shows uh, 726 patients uh, that underwent robotic partial nephrectomy in music and the Hyler clamping techniques and warm ischemia time. And what we're seeing is, um, so if we look at people who had a prolonged ischemia time over 30 minutes, um, so 8% of patients did have a longer ischemia time. That was only 6% for the smaller tumors, T1A, and over 15% for T1B tumors uh, that had a longer ischemia time. And if we look at ways clamping was done, so on the right again, um, the vast majority in green, um, they had clamping done, like full arterial clamping. And in the blue, these are off-clamp partial nephrectomies, only 4.4%. And in the orange, that's selective clamping that was only 0.6%. So in total, you know, only about 5% of partial nephrectomies did not involve clamping the main renal artery. And then if we take that down even further, how often was the vein also clamped in addition to the artery? That 40% um, of the time. Um, so most people, it appears, are shutting the kidney down, main artery clamp, and about 40% uh, of the time the vein is also being clamped. And with that, I'll turn the time back over to Dr. Stifelman. Thanks, Craig, so much. And um, we're gonna switch gears, talk a little about techniques for clamping, uh, specifically for selective clamping. Um, so this is something that's sort of, you know, close and dear to my heart. Um, so the first video I'm gonna show you is a hyalur tumor in a solitary kidney with a tumor thrombus. And it's really to, show you a couple of points here. So the first thing, I'm gonna stop here, as you can see, uh, this is the tumor up in the in the right-hand corner. I've put a, a small bulldog, not a large bulldog, but a smaller Scanlon bulldog with a little less Newton pressure on it, designed specifically for selective clamping on two of the anterior arteries going into the kidney. So now I go ahead and I give ICG, and you can see there's a lot of green but the area uh, where I'm going to cut out the tumor, which is right in the middle, there's no green. So then, because it's a solitary kidney, I say, hey, maybe I can take off one of the clamps. So I take off the clamp while the ICG is still going around uh, the bloodstream. And I see that, okay, now this is getting really green where the tumor is. So I say, I'm gonna, I go back on it. So the idea here is that when you're doing selective clamping and you're not 100% sure it's going to complete the area, you can put a one or two extra branches clamped. And once you give the ICG, you could take one of those branches off and say, hey, is this good enough? Or I need to put the clamp back on. So that's what I wanted to show you, the ability to sort of, um, you know, 
work through the algorithm of making sure you have enough of the artery arteries clamped to give you the ischemia. So here we are, no vein is clamped. Um, we just have these two arteries right here clamped and we're cutting out the tumor. And we got amazing visualization. Um, here we see a vein going into the tumor. So I just clipped that. And then I see another vein and I see it's pretty abnormal. So at this point, um, I open up the vein, I see there's a thrombus going in it. And I had a suspicion of that preoperatively. So again, I put a clip on that vein. Um, we still have excellent visualization that goes right into a bag. And then I go back to where I put the clip on and I cut it that out to send it for a margin. Um, and again, you can see there's a little bit of venous bleeding here, but that's controlled with suction. There's nothing arterial happening. And then we complete our renorophy. And I mentioned this earlier. Uh, I like to do this um, not directly through the base when it's at the hilum, but I go first at the lower portion of the horn. Then I go through the um, upper portion of the horn here. As you see, I was just getting the one of the a small branch off the artery, upper portion of the horn. We close that. We take the clamps off. We know there's no bleeding. Uh, then we give some more ICG, and now we know we have excellent perfusion to the kidney. So I think this is a great example of using selective clamping in a solitary kidney um, in a hilar tumor. And then we close this and we call a, a YV fashion. This is Dr. Chiakou showed me this. And I think this uh, really is nice because it puts the parenchyma over the defect in the collecting system, but it does not pinch the artery, vein, or ureter coming out because you've created a V versus closing it this direction. Um, next, I'm going to show you something that's going to Something I use a lot now whenever possible, this is called uh, IRIS. So this is a 3D model that was created um, prior to the surgery. I bring the model in through Tile Pro, and I know, again, this is another solitary kid. I know exactly uh, where the structures are. So I'm pointing it out. Um, this is before I even do the dissection. I know there's going to be an artery here. I know there's going to be an artery over here, and I know there are going to be some branching here. This is it after the dissection is done. You can see exactly how the visual, uh, what I see intraoperatively lines up exactly with the pre-op. And then I take it one step further, not only dissecting out all the arteries and the veins correctly, but now I can start to see which artery feeds the tumor. So this is all being done intraoperatively. It looks to me like I need to clamp right over here. This is the branch I need to clamp. So in order to make sure I get good ischemia, uh, I then go ahead and, and go and, and uh, clamp that uh, using the bulldog, as you'll see here. I use a little bit bigger one because a bigger branch. I give the ICG to confirm that my target area has no uh, green in it. There's a little bit of green posteriorly uh, or inferiorly on the tumor. So I say I'm going to accept that because it is a solitary kidney, and I'm just going to work my way to the inferior portion. I open up the collecting system as you saw there because I needed to based on the iris film. So 3D rendering through iris, through Fuji, through any other platform, I do think has a lot of value here, especially when you're doing selective clamping. Um, and I think what we're gonna see next is not just the side by side, but we're gonna actually see some cognitive fusion. And I think that's gonna even help more. Um, 
I do want to just point out a couple of things about selective clamping. I've spent probably 10 years of my career trying to prove that selective clamping makes a difference and should be done and offered to many patients. I've not been able to do it. And so I just want to be very transparent um, with everyone on the line. I would think this is one of the better uh, papers we've published on this because what we did in this paper is we specifically looked at patients who had a solitary kidney. And we specifically compared patients who got a selective clamping versus full clamping. And what we found is there was no additional risk when you did the selective clamping, but at three months, there was no functional advantage. So the one caveat of this is that all of the warm ischemia times were less than 15 minutes. So it's possible just because we were very efficient, we didn't see that difference, um, but we could not prove it. So in terms of selective clamping, I'll be very transparent. I still do it. Um, I still think it just cognitively makes sense to do. However, I can't prove to you that it's giving us any significant functional advantage. But what I can say um, with all the, you know, the work we put into it, it's not harming the patient in any way. It's not causing any risk to the patient. So I think it's going to be up to you. Uh, I think it's very reasonable to do an iris um, or 3D modeling in conjunction with ICG given intravenously really allows this to be reproducible and a lot more effective. So I'm gonna end there regarding uh, techniques for selective clamping um, and I'm happy to answer any questions uh, regarding selective clamping in particular. Great. Uh Thanks, Dr. Stifelman, for that. Uh, we do already have some questions from the uh, chat. Uh, Dr. Sarab Aurora uh, asks, when there's concern for pinching the hilar vessels during renorophy in hilar central tumors, do you ever omit the cortical layer versus doing that v YV outer renorophy? So I guess I'll start because uh, it was directed for the YV. So anytime... From, this is my opinion. Anytime you have an opening in the collecting system that needs to get repaired, I think it's good to put healthy parenchyma over it. Okay, not just leave it open like this, you know, like like a like an open scooped out, you know, um, piece of tuna, whatever you want to call it. So I think it's important to close it. So I do like to close it. I think also it helps with bleeding, but I do think that why the approach to it that creating that V versus closing it this way really helps prevent any pinching of not just the vessels in the vein, but also of the collecting system in the ureter. So I don't typically leave it open. Um, maybe if I didn't have an open the collecting system, I, I would consider it. But anytime I have an open and collecting system, I think it's, for me, important to cover it with some parenchyma. The other thing I noticed yeah. on your video is you not only closed uh, the capsular layer over top, you also made a point and showed in the video of getting the perinephric fat over top, oh, yeah. preserving that and putting layers. And I think that's really important for managing uh, urinary and bleeding complications, just getting additional yeah. tamponade. Over but also, there, if you ever have to go back, you know, you want to make sure you reestablish those planes because I've had to go back before. We all have for different reasons, you know, recurrent tumor, whatever that may be. Um, and it's very nice when you have those planes sort of reestablished. I'm curious to hear what Alice and Brian and, and, and Dr. Rosenberg, rest of the team think. 
Like, oh, I never do any uh, selective clamping for the most part. I mean, it's pretty rare unless it's an early branching. Uh, like you said, there's not much evidence for it. There's no reason to think it would hurt. Uh, my one question for you, though, is with ICG, I can see giving it beforehand. I tried using it you know, early on. I didn't find there, there was that much benefit to it. But is there really any benefit to giving it afterward? I mean, we presume it's per, perfused. So have you ever seen it where the kidney is not perfused? And if it's not, then what are you going to do? Yeah. So I have one time in my so I will the reason I give it afterwards because I have to make up 10 cc's anyway and so I've just have 8 cc's to burn so I give the 2 cc's and I feel really good and I show the medical students hey look it's really working so you're absolutely right it's total voodoo it it, it doesn't help I've done 1800 robotic partial fractures in my lifetime one time it did not light up after the case and I brought in interventional radio. I brought in a vascular surgeon. Um, he actually did an on-the-table intraop angiogram, uh, stented it, and it still died, the kidney. Uh, six months later, the kidney was dead. So um, I guess, you know, one out of 1,000 or 1,800, you may, may be useful, but you're right. I don't think it adds that much, um, except just makes you feel good. Makes you feel good. Alice, tell me uh, again, looking at those, how often would you leave uh, a defect open uh, in your cases versus are you closing that second layer routinely or, or what helps you make that decision? Yeah, almost never would leave it open. You know, I agree with Dr. Stifelman. I want to see, you know, something covering, especially if there's a concern for a collecting system injury. Um, you know, I I'll almost always close it. I think there's a very rare circumstance in which I won't, and that's if the hyalur vessels are in such close proximity that I'm concerned that I'm going to get one of them and compromise a lot of the kidney. And I, I think, Brad, I heard your opinion on this one. You're closing both layers all the time. Um, Craig, do you have a, a differing opinion? How often do you leave it open? Um, if I had a tumor where you're going to have a really broad base defect, let's say it's a big mass, but it's mostly exophytic. And when you scoop it out, you've just got this wide crater and it's going to be really hard to get the edges together. If that's not bleeding a lot, then I'll just sew the inner layer and be done. But most of the time, I try to do two layers. Got it. So we've got some pretty consistency across the panel that we're going to close in two layers all the time. Um, just some differences about whether that second layer is done before or after unclamping. So that's helpful to hear. Um, we did have one other comment again here, uh, again, from Dr. Desai talking about early unclamped helps to find bleeders before the second layer of suture. So um, I see he's on that camp uh, for that. Uh, another question uh, we have here uh, is, uh, are there times when you'd use a nucleation to minimize bleeding uh, when you're seeing adjacent vessels that are there? Uh, versus using in a nucleoreceptive technique. Brad, you want to feel that one? Um, about enucleation? Yep. I Which, don't, do I you don't always, do yeah, you don't do it. You always like to see tissue below. I mean, I just don't want to be that close to the tumor. Um, you know, I don't think the few millimeters of parenchyma I'm taking is going to compromise renal function. I don't think. Uh, I, I don't know. I just haven't really tried it. I, I, I've seen videos about it. You know, sometimes the residents are trying to like get me to do it and stuff, but I don't know. I just don't feel like oncologically that's something I really want to do. And I really haven't had 
problems and it, it you know with not you know, with taking a, a parenchymal margin so i always do it i mean one, one thing like going back to the other thing is like if there's a little oozing you know a lot of people i noticed in a lot of the videos i reviewed people are just throwing whip stitches and everything in the parenchyma and to be honest like i'll i'll throw my deep layer in or, or whatever it takes to kind of get any significant bleeding under control and then all that oozing usually stops once you bring the edges of the capsule together like i mean i just find like if it's just a little oozing bring the edges together put it down and 99 times out of 100 it's good so that's why i always like to close it again like if it's a real shallow real wide defect like craig said maybe you can't but most of the time you're going to be able to get those edges together and stop any little oozing in there. Yeah. Is anyone, I guess another uh, difference in technique, I'm rarely, if ever, put a bolster or material in anymore. I'm using getting my edges uh, uh, down. I saw in some of the videos I reviewed that people seem to still be using bolsters. Uh, anyone else on the panel uh, using them? I mean, I probably am 2% of the time that I'll put something when I feel like I can't Never. get it. Yeah, never. Yep. Um, I think when I first started, I don't know anymore. Yeah, I, I think that's a huge take-home message for anyone out there using a bolster. Um, it's pretty, you know, just think about it rationally for a second. You're, you're putting a piece of, you know, gel foam and surgery cell into the middle of the defect and you're covering it over. You now have created like this artificial space underneath. If, you know, that is a setup for a pseudoaneurysm. And I will say one of the things that we did to move the needle to get us off the pseudoaneurysms, because our radiologists were loving it because, you know, early on, they were like, every, they kept on coming back and like that really good at selective uh, embolization, but getting rid of the bolster. Alice, Brian, anyone use a bolster? I don't want to shame you if you are, but yeah, every, no, that's, I, I, that's I, I a take home message myself. for sure. You know, yeah. everyone on the line, uh, try again away from it. Yeah, the other thing, again, doing the video review, which is great, is you get to see so many different techniques. And it's almost to me like, you know, whose videos have you watched or when did you stop reading the literature? Because I, I, I know one of my partners still does individual sutures instead of kind of running back and forth. And so at the end of the case, he's got like five needles flopping in there. And I, I just I don't see the value uh, of doing that. And so hopefully we're we can instruct people that heterogeneity is good, but sometimes moving towards homogeneity and reducing variation is a good thing. Absolutely. So, uh, any other comments on uh, this section before we move on? I just, um, I know we, you know, uh, Craig did a really good job of this. I'm just curious from the panel, Brian, Alice, uh, the rest of the team, how many do a second time out before going on clamp? Yes. I do. Okay. Always. Anybody, anyone yeah, know? I do as well. Awesome. Awesome. Great take home message, guys. If you don't have that, take the list from Craig that he put up there. Um, it's super important, you know, because if you don't, you're going to miss something at, at some point. But as even more importantly, it creates a real intentionality within the surgery. Like everyone knows, okay, this is the real deal. We're going on clamp. So um, great take home point there, Dr. Rogers. Thank you. Right. Thanks, Michael. Let's uh, turn it back over to Dr. Rogers to talk about what do you do when you see bleeding when the clamp comes off? Oh. So 
our next discussion will be about bleeding that occurs after the clamps come off during partial nephrectomy. So we'll get right to some videos. This is again from our uh, video review uh, live project that we did. And I think this shows a great case uh, of management of bleeding after unclamping. So right now we're on clamp. So bulldog clamps are on and there is some bleeding even on clamp, but this is very, um, you know, methodical sewing under the bleeding area. And then after the inner layer is done, we'll start, uh, the surgeon starts to do outer renorophy sutures and finishing up those outer renorophy sutures, tightening them down. So sliding clip renorophy technique, the defects almost coming together there, looks beautiful. Um, getting ready to come off clamp. And here we go, the clamp comes off. Second clamp comes off. So we're all done, right? Um, however, look at the defect there. We've got some bright red blood. You can see it billowing up there. You know, this is where you, your gut kind of sinks a little bit here because the defect's been completely closed and it's bleeding. It's not like you can just go in there and put a small suture in for the bleeder. It, it's been shut down. So you got to decide, are you going to reclamp the kidney? Are you going to take it all apart and sew? Or are you going to do what the surgeon does here, which works very well, is just continue to tighten sutures, put additional sutures in to try to get more compressive hemostasis. So that suture really did the trick and is now just cleaning uh, things up. But the idea of being patient, tightening each suture down, placing additional sutures if necessary. All right. And then for this, uh, this case is going to show the value of early unclamping. So unlike the last case where you're managing a defect that's already closed, so you can't really see if there's a bleeder down deep. Um, if the clamp is taken off after the inner layer, then if there is a bleeder, you can see that bleeder and manage it. So this is that long ascolap, uh, the long laparoscopic bulldog clamp. Notice it was clamping both an artery and a venous branch and the vein is decompressed. This is a hyalur tumor abutting the, both the ureter and uh, venous branches. So I'm clamping artery and vein and for the part that's touching this branch of the vein, we're doing enucleoresection. Now this is more about early unclamping, so I will skip along uh, to where the resection's done. The tumor is placed aside. We're starting an inner layer uh, closure and being careful as we approach the hilum not to um, sew the hilar vessels. So we're keeping our bites shallow. This is a barb suture, SH needle, running our way along cortical medullary junction to cortical medullary junction. Um, looking for small branches, working our way down, working our way back up. Um, this is one of my cases. Um, and then, then we're going to come out, might as well use the suture, come out in an area that's easy for the assistant to get to, clip that, and then coming off clamp. So I haven't done any outer layer renorophy sutures. Clamps are off, and now... If there was bleeding, I would see, you know, pumping, oozing there, and I could go back and place another inner layer. But 
fortunately in this case, we're not seeing bleeding. So then I can proceed with the outer layer renorophy, the same sliding clip renorophy technique, but we've saved a little bit of clamp time with that and preserve the ability to put more sutures in. Although those sutures do cost you in terms of the kidney is now softer. Um, I normally don't do bolsters, but in a case like this, I will. All right, so now our worst case scenario. What if there's so much bleeding that you have to convert to open? Now, full disclosure, this is actually not a partial nephrectomy. This is a radical nephrectomy of a very large, aggressive tumor with lots of parasitic vessels that in retrospect, I probably should have just done open. But it gives you the point across of how do you manage a bleed where you're going to have to open convert? This is a large parasitic vessel that I got into and attempts at cautery and pressure just made it get bigger. These parasitic vessels have thin walls, they tear, they keep bleeding. But what this is showing is an open conversion that occurred over a period of almost 45 minutes where just holding compression, telling anesthesia from the get-go that we know we're gonna convert, but we're getting everything ready. We're getting an open tray, anesthesia is getting another IV in, we're making sure there's blood available, we're replacing the sponges, um, trying to get more exposure. So when we do open, there's not as much to do. So this is not a crash conversion. Um, if you can avoid a crash conversion, um, the better. So this is placing another port in, putting a sponge to hold where the bleeder is. And then with that there, then we back the robot away, subcostal incision, you know right where it is. And we were able to quickly get the kidney out and fix that, uh, fix that area. Um, so intraoperative conversions in music kidney, what we've seen is um, about a 5% conversion rate to radical nephrectomy uh, from a partial nephrectomy. And out of those conversions, only five of those were actually due to bleeding complications. Usually a conversion to radical is guided by the oncology, uh, the disease complexity. Um, but surgeons do need to be prepared to convert and also need to be, whether that's conversion to radical or conversion to open. And with that, I will turn the time back over to Dr. Stifelman. All right, so those are some pretty great videos, uh, Dr. Rogers, and thank you for sharing with you. I will say I don't have any videos on this. Uh, I did look, um, it's not that I have never had post-operative uh, issues or you know post-clamp bleeding, but uh, unfortunately I don't have them. So what I'm gonna do is just share probably a little bit of a summary of the way I look at this and uh, reiterate, I'm sure, a lot of the stuff that uh, you already said, Craig. In terms of, you know, how I manage, you know, post-op or post-clamping, you know, the first thing I do when we're off clamp and I feel like everything is well controlled, before I leave the operating room, I will decrease my pneumoperitoneum to less than five millimeters of mercury. I'll make sure my mean arterial pressure is 80. And that, even if I have to sort of lighten the patient up to get the blood pressure up um, or artificially induce it with some medication, we'll do that. And I'll valsalva the patient two or three times. So those three things I do for every patient before I exit the abdomen to make sure there is no bleeding um, and that in situations that may occur in the recovery room, um, normal, no pneumo, elevated blood pressure, coughing are all recapitulated um, or, you know, um, kind of done in the operating room before the patient wakes up. Now, if I do see bleeding, 
uh, sort of my step, my first step um, is tighten up the WEX, you know, just go to the clamp, uh, to the WEX uh, sutures that are placed in the capsule and just tighten them up from both sides. That should work. Second, um, uh, if there is a little bit of an opening, I'll place some flow seal and I'll leave pressure for about two or three minutes. If those things don't work um, and or I'm seeing gross blood coming out, like I'm soaking through cottonoids um, or I'm seeing significant amount of blood going into the ureter, that's another thing you want to check. Is there any blood going into, you know, out of the Foley, because that's a bad sign. Not a little bit of pink blood, but like bright red blood. Then I will actually go take everything down, go back on clamp, and then re-suture. And then prior to closing the capsule, I'll take the clamps off in that situation. So normally I I do a three, um, you know, uh, a three-part renorophy, uh, part one, as you saw, is closing the vessels and the collecting system. Part two is bringing the cortical medullary junction together. Part three is bringing the capsule together. So it's three layers that I like to do. Collecting system and artery separately. Cortical medullary junction, bringing it together in a mattress suture. And number three, bringing the capsule together. That's the way I do it. Um, if I'm having a lot of bleeding, it's bleeding through the suture line. There's blood coming out and the Foley significant blood I'm worried about or something underneath there, then I will go back on clamp, take everything down, re-suture, and then before I get even to the cortical medullary phase, I will take off the clamp and make sure I have everything controlled. Then I'll finish up my suture line. Um, so I think those are some really important points because you're better off fixing it in the operating room and bring him back to uh, IR later that night after a couple of blood transfusions. So listen, I think we're, that's really all I have to add here. Why don't we go back to the panel and do some questions and answers. Thanks for those presentations. Uh, guys, we didn't get all the way uh, down the road to conversion uh, in those, in that first video, but we did in the second. Uh, so, uh, Let's hear some thoughts. Uh, Dr. Samurgeon, uh, what are you thinking when you're seeing the bleeding off the clamp? So for that first video, I think that was pretty manageable bleeding. I think most of the time when uh, you tighten down the wet clips, a lot of times that will resolve itself. Um, you know, for a more serious bleed, you know, a conversion, I agree, has to be something that's controlled if possible. Um, you know, so as Dr. Rogers was talking about, uh, kind of the prolonged um, opening in that case, best if you can to get control over it and have an assistant at the bedside who can maintain that control, hold pressure um, until you can open safely. The other thing I'll always have in the room is a hand assist port, you know, just in case you need to throw in a hand and get, you know, just hold manual pressure on the hilum um, in the event of a very large bleed. Uh, Dr. Seifman, have you ever uh, reclamped or when would you consider reclamping uh, in these situations? So I have never reclamped. Uh, I think if there's that much bleeding or considering reclamping, I'm probably just going to take the kidney out because I don't think that uh, it's good for the kidney. And I, I'm not sure that if I didn't fix it the first time, I'm not sure I can fix it the second time. The other thing that... Um, 
I noticed too in the one video, they put the lappertize on before taking out the clamps. So when I put in my capsule sutures, I just put in one hemolock, tighten it down, take my clamps off. Now, if I need to tighten those sutures that are already there, I still have the ability to do so because I can still slide them down. The lappertize will stop you from doing that. So I can add more pressure at that point and then put either a second clip or a lappertize on at that point. But uh, I know I've not had to, to reclamp. And we might be getting down into nuts and bolts here, but I, I've published even on the greater holding strength of a hemolock followed by a lappertize, but I've gotten completely away from lappertize. I just put a hemolock with another hemolock. And like you, I thought that gap was just too wide. Uh, I wouldn't have used that as my final uh, positioning and I wouldn't have had a final position until after I had unclamped and I would slide them down. So I thought that was a technique that, that could be improved there as well. The lappertizer are sometimes a little harder to get onto the suture, especially the barb suture. So more often than not, I end up putting on a second hemolock as opposed to a lappertize. Yeah. How about uh, others? A quick question for everybody, just to, before we get off the point of bar, uh, of, of the capsular sutures, because the capsular sutures are so important. You know, they're not the only thing. Every, everything's important, but they are important. So, you know, it's very funny. You know, initially, Brian, you were like, oh, my gosh, who the heck puts in six of these sutures? Everyone just runs it. Well, you saw six people actually put in different sutures. So I, I, I have to push back a little bit. I still like to put individual sutures and have five needles oh, cut out because if one breaks um, or it's easier for me to adjust the tension. Number two is I use a, uh, a 3.0 um, barb, not a Stratafix suture, but the other company, the barb suture, because um, they have very thick barbs sticking out of it and it works like a zip tie. So you literally, I, I don't put a second, uh, I have not put routinely since doing that, a second wet clip on it. And you literally just zip tie the thing down and it, and it holds that whack in place. So that's, I don't know, does, uh, who uses barb suture for the capsule? Do they have a specific barb suture they like to use? Let's bring it around the horn. Brian? That's great. Yeah. Why don't I, why don't I jump in first since I've been uh, the, the different opinion. So I, if it's not a big tumor and it's a pretty straightforward case, I use Vicryl. I use inside the kidney for my repair. I just use Vicryl, uh, 3.0 to close the inside. And then I use 2.0 Vicryl on the outside. I'll do a running suture. I'll keep it long. I will put a WEC on one side. I'll put a WEC on the other side. I'll leave space and then put a third WEC and then go through. So I'll go horizontal mattress back and forth so I can secure each of those individually, but do it all with just the one needle. So similar to yours, I can tighten them individually afterwards. Um, if it's a really big tumor, then I love the 2.0 V-lock um, because of the barbs, like you say, but I only use that for a bigger bigger tumor and a bigger defect. Uh, Alice? I'm using the 2.0 uh, V-lock for the capsular stitch every time. And I agree that really it only takes one whack in that circumstance, they don't slide back. I think I right. use the 202, by the way. I'm not sure, 302. Right. On an SH needle, right? Nice big needle. Mm -hmm. 20, you're trying for the outside. Yeah. For the outside. Yeah. For the inside, you're not using a 20. No, no, no. For no. the inside, I use a 3 Stratifix. Yeah. Craig? So I use, I currently use barb suture on the inner layer. Uh, I use Vicryl on the outer layer. I've, I've done it. <laughs> now I think I need to switch back because, uh, I did it to save money, but 
it, it really makes no sense because all of my cost savings I nullify by putting a Laprati on it, right? Like, yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's probably time to switch back. Yeah, I got totally into the cost saving thing. Like I'm big about minimizing instruments and this because of my health system. And that's why I got no Laprati's. I got nothing else. But yeah, Brad, what do you got? I use Barb Suture 30 Barbed for the inner layer. And uh, I still also use 20 Vicryl for the capsule. Um, and then Wet Clip, and I put a Laprati at, you know, last on there. So for those that are still using Vicryl and living in the early 2000s and the knots, next time you do a case, try the 2.0 barb suture with an SH, and you're going to feel this like zip tie go down. Like, you're going to feel so good. Right, Alice? Yeah, it's great. The ratchet. <laughs> and I just have to swallow the $20. Oh my gosh. Uh, so there's a question. The other thing is talking about cost savings, who uses two needle drivers in every case? Never. Never, never, right? Never, ever. One needle driver, and I use a bipolar. LBG. Right. Uh, Craig, Alice, Brad, Brian? I usually use two needle drivers. I, I, I usually use two needle drivers. He's shaming you guys. I would never do that. But I like the bipolar better anyway, because usually that other hand is trying to manage the tissue, not the needle. Yeah. So I actually think it's better to only have one needle driver, but I'm not shaming anyone on that one. Okay, question. Pat Sweeney is asking us, how often do you guys use hemostatic agents such as FlowSeal? Brian Seifman, you have the floor, it looks like. So I typically put FlowSeal on almost every case, and really I just like when I leave, kind of like when you know Michael uses the ICG at the end of the case. I like putting my FlowSeal on top. It stays white. It looks pretty. looks like a little snow cone. I feel good. So I use it for almost every case, and I'm not worried about the cost. I'm glad you feel good. I almost never use flow seal unless I see bleeding. Brad, what do you got? Every time. <laughs> it's my insurance policy. I put I put flow seal after I close the capsule, I put flow seal on top and I let it kind of seep in there and uh and then I put a piece of uh I put a half piece of uh surgicel on top and I lay it down like a blanket and then I can sleep at night. We we have the wrong Desai. It doesn't cost me anything. We have the wrong Desai on the line, but I will tell you, I even mentioned it again today, that I love to use the white Surgicel test of Desai. And uh, I don't use it every case, but it really is much more satisfying at the end if you've laid that white thing down and it's not totally purple and, and red at the end. I, I would say it's like tucking a baby in with a blanket. You just <laughs> get that thing down there and it feels so good. Yeah. <laughs> Craig, what Security. There? so well, you saw me in my case. I put flow seal and I put uh, a bolster in. So I broke, sort of broke my rule there. I hardly ever use a bolster, but the only time I would use flow seal and a bolster is if I've got an area of the defect that I can't do what I like to do of close the edges of the capsule together. So if I'm going to strangulate the hilum, you know, when you might use a YV plasty might be the only time I would do that. But otherwise, if I get the defect edges close together, what's the flow seal going to do? I have no way to get it down to where the bleeders are. I can just dump it on top of the kidney, but I'd rather put a flowable like, uh, you know, Vista seal or Evacel or something that I can drip down that teeny crack to get it where the bleeders are going to be. Um, so I don't usually use flow seal routinely. We have another question in the chat uh, from Dr. Mujassar Hussein. 
Um, does anyone use monocryl for the basal renorphy so you can tighten both ends? Guess it's a good suggestion. I no. I don't use it. I just remembered why I don't use a barb suture anymore in the outer layer for that exact reason. I go back right. and I tighten the other side. You can yeah, tighten that's... the other side too with, with the barb suture, right, Alice? Uh, <laughs> keep fighting. I'm using my Vicryl, baby. Vicryl every time, tighten every stitch. But maybe there's a good time to move on to our next uh, topic, uh, which is management of bleeding after uh, the case is over. Dr. Rogers, let's see what you have to say on this. Okay, so the next thing we're going to talk about is bleeding that occurs not before the clamping, during the clamping, or right after the clamping, but this is bleeding that occurs when the surgery is over. So post-op bleeds. Um, so I'll give a case, a uh, case of mine. This is a, a male, 56-year-old male, has a small left-sided renal mass, low complexity, looks like a kind of a chip shot partial nephrectomy. Patient does have some comorbidities, uh, has had an MI, a stent on aspirin and Plavix, Plavix uh, was a was cleared to hold the Plavix, underwent an uneventful partial nephrectomy, minimal blood loss, did well postoperatively, went home. However, a week out when the patient restarted Plavix, um, two days later presented to the ED with abdominal pain, and the hemoglobin was noted to be 7.8, and a CT scan on the right shows a large retroperitoneal hematoma with active extravasation. So uh, what do we do for this patient? And our, we get called, our, our trainees get called for these patients, you know, a week out when there's a problem. Well, this patient underwent uh, a transfusion for the anemia and went to interventional radiology uh, where he underwent success, uh, a selective embolization procedure. So, um, and we have an interventional radiologist on our panel that can go more into this, but you can see um, on the left, um, we're seeing extravasation uh, here from where there's a bleed. And after coiling is done, uh, it's showing no more extravasation. So for this patient, this fixed the problem. Uh, patient was able to go home uh, uneventful after that and, and still preserve renal function. So looking at vascular complications after partial nephrectomy, it's an uncommon event about, uh, reported in the literature about 2% incidence of pseudoaneurysm and AV fistulas. These presentations are usually delayed. In my patient, it was one week. It can be up to two weeks, usually presenting with gross hematuria. And the majority of these patients uh, required embolization. But um, Fortunately, we're still able to maintain stable renal function after the embolization procedure was done. Um, looking at music data with ED readmissions uh, and uh, visits to the ER. So e ER visits at five and a half percent, readmission after partial nephrectomy at 2.9%. How does that compare uh, to national data? So it looks favorable nationwide. So our ED visits at five and a half percent, where nationwide uh, data rates are up to fifteen and a half percent. Our readmission rate at two point nine percent, I think, is is reasonable compared to national data. So if we look at bleeding after partial nephrectomy in our uh, in music kidney again, our own data. So out of twenty nine readmissions were reviewed. 
And out of those readmissions, um, over half of those were due to bleeding or pseudoaneurysm. So these were appropriate readmissions. Um, and these tended to be larger tumors, higher complexity tumors. So challenging as expected, more challenging partial, higher likelihood of bleed, higher likelihood of admission with that bleed. Um, so um, the average time of presentation to the emergency department was uh, day 11. So it fits in that one to two week window. Um, only five patients were managed, were able to be managed conservatively. The majority of patients uh, did require surgical or uh, interventional radiology intervention. So 10 of those with uh, embolization, uh, one patient cystoclodivac with stent, and one, a pa one patient returned to the OR for uh, clodivac. Um, so avoiding bleeding after partial nephrectomy. Um, you know, in general, the bleeding complications there, we've talked about different techniques to try to minimize or avoid uh, bleeding complications after partial nephrectomy, um, whether that's suturing techniques, early on clamping, reducing the pneumo, pressure, patients, hemostatic agents. All of these techniques we're talking about today are to try to avoid this scenario. Um, now, bleeds will happen, especially with these complex tumors, and it is important to have backup plans, especially interventional radiology that's available um, to help uh, when, when these rare occurrences, which were like 2% or less, but when they happen, those patients need to be, um, you know, they need to have options and having interventional radiology available is important. But preparation ahead of time to help reduce those bleeding, you know, those bleeds is equally important. And with that, I'm going to turn the time back over to our panel for a uh, live Q&A. Thank you. Brian, you're muted. Can you hear me now for my thing? That's yes. So we have uh, Andy Vartanian from Interventional Radiology. Uh, can you comment on on some of what you see and and when's the timing of these, uh, and and what do you do? How do you help us out in the expert way that you guys do? Sure. Well, uh, first off, thanks for the invitation to to come uh, participate. And this stuff looks very fascinating. I don't know how you guys do all this. I'm a catheter jockey, and you know I see something bleeding, I stop it. I can't do anything more complex than that, but. Um, it, it, these are very rare. In the last 12 years, I think I've probably only seen four or five of them. And um, as was mentioned in the presentation, it's usually, I mean, in that, that you know, 10, 10 to 12 day window uh, right after the procedure. And, and, and usually it's getting cross-sectional imaging, uh, which everyone seems to do in the, in the ER. And so seeing that active bleeding is a pretty good indication for us that, that we'll need to um, uh, intervene. And, in most of those cases, they they are they're they're usually you know a small pseudoaneurysm, um, and they're 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 treated pretty quickly with uh, coil embolization. I saw uh, something recently. I was reviewing a paper. Uh, I think it was talking about uh, whether you use coils or whether you also use some adjunctive uh, in there. Um, do you have any insight into that? Is it just coils, or I don't even remember what that other product they were talking about that maybe it helped more. 
Yeah, I, I would, uh, I, in my experience, I just use coils, just, uh, you know, uh, just, just permanent embolic and, and I don't want anything, no particles or anything going distally. I don't know if there could be a fistula or anything that was possibly created. Um, I'd want to avoid using anything like uh, particles that could just go distal and cause more problem. So Andy, I have a question for you. Um, sure. So I, I'm calling you up. It's uh, seven o'clock at night. My patient had a complicated partial nephrectomy. The pressure is you know, stable, but like low hundreds, a little soft, a little tachycardic, going to get a unit of blood, bright red blood from the Foley. We order a non-con CT scan and it shows me that there's blood in the collecting system. You know, so we've got, we're transfusing, we got soft blood pressure. We have a non-con CT that shows clear and fresh blood in the pelvis tracking its way down the ureter. Do I need a, a, an angiogram? I mean, do I need a CTA for this? Or is that enough information to say, hey, Michael, let's get let's let's open up the room for you. So the two questions are, is that enough information for you to open up our room? And if they're pseudo, if they're sort of stable, would you ever say, hey, let's just wait till tomorrow when we have the team here? Or would you consider that this no matter what, an emergency, we got to get them done, you know, ASAP? Right. Um, and a couple of very good questions. Now, the CT, and, and it's interesting because I do run into that a lot where we get a non-contrast CT. Um, it's very helpful from my standpoint to see the anatomy. And and like, I mean, if there's accessory renals or anything like that, any more guidance that I can have, because a lot of the times um, uh, just a retroperitoneal bleed or something like that, it's not specific enough. Um, and I'm just going to be wasting more contrast fishing around for vessels that might be bleeding rather than just giving 80 cc's of contrast for a cta that way i have all the information i need and i could be much more targeted when i'm in there doing a procedure um uh, the, the the other question that you brought up is, is timing uh great question obviously it's always a discussion with the referring urologist um if if if, if they're pretty um adamant that this the patient's kind of sick and needs to go i i generally will just um uh, uh go with give them the benefit of the doubt and, and take it um you know brad and uh, brian have you know i've worked with them for several years and 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 i think that's kind of they always have a discussion with one of the ir docs and and if if we feel like they need to go they go if they have a ct that has active bleeding on it that we could see with a contrast they always go um gotcha yeah and yeah let me switch to uh, some of our urologists. Alice, what's your trigger uh, when you're following this that you think you're going to need uh, to do something further? When do you? What are your first steps, and when do you think you need IR or return trip to the OR? Yeah, I mean, most of the time it'll be IR. Um, you, you know, kind of some of the things that Dr. Steifelman was saying. If the patient just clinically looks like it, you know, their blood pressures are soft, they're a little tacky. You get the scan. You know, you see that there's blood there. That's my trigger to at least have a conversation with an interventional radiologist. You know, we'll start serial lab uh, trending and, you know, get a blood transfusion going rather quickly. I think it's pretty rare that you'd have to go back to the OR unless, you know, it's a same day post-op event. And Craig, what's your algorithm? Um, I mean, why don't I just share my algorithm and then and see how that compares? Like if somebody is uh, looking uh, concerning in the middle of the night, to me, it's you got to get fluid in them, uh, see if they respond to that. If hemoglobins are dropping, 
Uh, to me, it's one or two units first. Um, unless there's really, you know, aggressive uh, hemodynamic concerns, uh, I don't want to do anything until I've seen at least one or two uh, uh, units again. And and if it's not responding to fluid re resuscitation, that's the moment when I'm thinking we're going to IR. Craig, what are your thoughts? Um, pretty much the same. I mean, these are restless nights, right? We've been there. Um, you don't sleep well. You're nervous. You're like, gosh, I hope the hemoglobin responds to the transfusion. And what if it doesn't? Are we going to the OR? Can I get IR to embolize this in the middle of the night? You know, IR may be a life threat, uh, you know, a life saving intervention here, um, which actually brings up another uh, question for all of you. I don't know if you've been in the position, have you done these cases at satellite hospitals where there may not be IR available in the middle of the night? Um, should these be done at hospitals where IR isn't available in the middle of the night? Um, I don't know. Which, well, your question. follow up, how about your follow up? How about the people who are doing same day discharge? for partial nephrectomies. There's not IR anywhere close to anyone for same day discharge. Yeah. So anyone out there uh, have concerns or uh, about doing these in ambulatory sites or same day discharge, or do you think for the straightforward low complexity T1As that's reasonable? Alice? Yeah, I think, you know, I've, I've always had the privilege of having IR, so I can't answer from the standpoint of somebody who hasn't. But, you know, recently uh, in my move, I'm not going to have IR there, you know, at all hours. I think it's still reasonable. I mean, it's such a rare event anyway. You know, I don't think there's a good reason to do all partial nephrectomies in a, you know, tertiary care hospital that has interventional radiology immediately available, especially, you know, if you are in a system that you can transfer your patient over to a place that does have IR. Yeah. And I'll tell you from my practice, I have done cases at our ambulatory surgery center, but I've limited them to prostates, uh, salvage pelvic lymph node dissections, pyeloplasties. I haven't done partial nephrectomies there yet. So good, good uh, question there. So just uh, to, to kind of jump into that, um, I sort of have to push back. I, I think these can be done very safely in many cases in ambulatory or, or, or you know, true same day surgery cases. When you have this problem, it's almost always a week or two after. It's not the night of. Like, you know, when you leave the OR, if there's going to be a problem that night. OK, and you just shouldn't leave the OR until there's no problem. These things happen a week or two later. When the suture starts to like, you know, dissolve or the, you know, the spasm comes out or the clot moves or something, that's when it happens. It's very rare that it happens. So, you know, it doesn't matter if you, you, you know, you can tell your patient, if you see bright red blood in the urine, get over to the hospital. Now, the other thing is I'd push back is, you know, um, when you see bright red blood in, in the urine coming out one week after surgery, like bright red. I, there's no like I'm waiting. I'll see if the blood get you know gets okay. Maybe, maybe they're stable. These things are intermittent, right? So you could have a patient that shows up, give them a couple of units, they look great. IR is like, hey, everything looks great. I just saw the patient. The blood pressure's fine. Let's do it in the morning. And then you know, two hours later, you're, you're shit out of luck because you're where you were, were, but worse four hours ago. So I sort of would push back also and say, if you're saying we need to go to IR. Part, and I apologize, Andy, we're going now. <laughs> we're not waiting till the morning. Like if this has to go, we're not like, we're not waiting. And so I think that would be 
sort of my, that's my take on the algorithm. I'm just Brad and Brian. Um, what do you guys think? Am I off the wall here? No, I agree with you. I mean, it, it's not going to get better on its own. And, you know, I got to tell you, I mean, the people, Andy, we have a good relationship with them. You tell them you need to go, they go, okay. Yeah. So it really hasn't been an issue. Though I will tell you, I did have an experience recently, and Andy was right about doing a CTA first. I had a guy who actually in the recovery room, his blood pressure kept dropping. And it was a very simple case, straightforward. Uh, he got two units of blood didn't really respond. And I thought I had to take them back, talk to IR. They said, well, let's get a CTA. He's actually bleeding from a port site. Yeah. So I'm glad I didn't take him back. I wouldn't have done them any good. Uh, yeah. And they're actually able just to, you know, inject some uh, thrombin, you know, at the port site. So I think the CTA is probably the first thing to do even before taking them back to the OR to prove that it's coming from the kidney. Yeah, I think that's very important. And, and Michael, I think uh, you and I were talking about different scenarios. I was talking about that first day. Um, okay. I know there's a surgeon in my hospital who had a very bad uh, thing with the same thing with a port site bleed. Uh, and I think that's where the value of the CT is. Like we always think it's going to be right there at, you know, it's an intravascular thing, but maybe you uh, had some other artery on spasm or some venous bleed or something. So I, I do think that's the algorithm. Yeah. I agree with you when the patient's coming back a week later. Uh, yeah, we know where we're going. We need to stabilize the patient. Then we need to go to IR. Um, usually a CT before they're going to IR. But again, it's a, the algorithm's different. Uh, we have two questions in the chat from uh, Dr. Desai. Uh, I think I know the answers, but we're going we're gonna to ask uh, around. Has anyone uh, using hypotensive anesthesia during robotic partial nephrectomy? Or is anyone using Lumigel instead of clamping intravascular Lumigel? Craig, Michael, I, I'm guessing the rest of us have not. I, I certainly am not. I don't know what Lumigel is. And I never, I think that's just nuts with this, you know, yes. the the whole cold hyposchemia, no clamp nonsense. Um, I, I don't do that. Yeah. I don't know why you would want to give your patient a stroke. Just yes. so you can have less bleeding for five minutes. I, yep. I don't understand that. Um, great. Uh, Craig, any uh, closing thoughts on this section before I go to our uh, closing? No, good discussion. Thanks. Great. Well, thanks, everyone. Let me just uh, provide some closing remarks to, to uh, finish us out. Um, uh, these slides were prepared ahead of time, so I may have to add some thoughts of things we just learned. Uh, but uh, number one, uh, across music, uh, again, we've done, we're doing partial nephrectomies in all of our sites uh, for 81% of T1As, 39% of T1Bs with wide variation. So uh, as people are doing more complex partial nephrectomies, the risk of bleeding is higher uh, and the intraoperative moves we need to do to make sure we have good control uh, is certainly important. We've had these discussions in our collaborative meetings and we certainly will continue to. Uh, just because you can do a partial nephrectomy doesn't mean it's appropriate in every situation. Uh, I would encourage uh, all who are doing these to, to use your clinical judgment. You know, you gotta include the, the tumor factors, the patient factors, renal function, uh, and surgeon factors. How, how comfortable uh, are you with this, uh, the challenge that this case presents? Uh, and it's always good to remind uh, us that the AUA guidelines do support radical nephrectomy uh, in patients without CKD, a normal contralateral kidney, 
and when that partial would be deemed complex, even in experienced hands. Uh, takeaways from, from uh, what I think we've heard from our speakers and our panelists, um, that preclamp uh, vascular injury uh, situation, a lot of it is preparation and being ready ahead of time. And so again, Dr. Rogers presented for us uh, the checklist. Uh, I think Dr. Steifman highlighted again, uh, the importance of doing a timeout at the beginning and a timeout before you clamp. You heard about 40 uh, uh, su proline sutures, maybe with a lapper tie on it uh, that you've got every time uh, and certainly being uh, prepared. So grasping to stop that uh, bleeder, maybe putting a bulldog clamp if you need, having that rescue suture available, um, and thinking through when you have that large injury, are you going to sew it? Are you going to clamp? How are you going to get this done? Uh, we talked then about bleeding on clamp. Uh, again, that checklist. Uh, make sure you've clamped appropriately. Dr. Stifelman, again, highlighted his view of using the ICG. Uh, but alternatively, again, looking at uh, the vein and making sure it's going flat versus that it's still full, I think is a great tip for all of us uh, to look uh, whether or not you're going to clamp the vein or not. You can use that prograsp or that fenestrated to, to do that same maneuver. Um, if you see an arterial bleed, uh, you know, if you have a clamp on the vein, you can put a second one uh, on the artery at that point. Uh, you may want to go look for a, an additional artery or if it's not too, too bad, uh, just continue working. And so that's that decision-making process again. Uh, and for venous bleeding, increasing the pneumo, uh, putting pressure on the bleed, maybe going back and clamping uh, the vein or or taking off that vein clamp if it's already there. Uh, we talked about bleeding post-clamp, uh, talked uh, specifically some about tightening wex, difference of opinions about uh, what type of sutures you might have there and your ability to tighten wex. But I think the universal thought is it's good to tighten uh, after the uh, kidney is reperfused. Uh, consider early unclamping uh, because then you can uh, identify those bleeders before that outer layer is done. Uh, and for those who don't do that uh, routinely or ever, maybe that's something to try and see how that works for you. Uh, and certainly if uh, things are going poorly and you're going to convert, uh, you know, getting good communication with anesthesia and your nursing team about what instrumentation needs to be there, whether you need a vascular surgeon, uh, all of those things. Uh, we talked about postoperative bleeds, having a high index of suspicion, particularly for patients with hematuria or flank pain uh, in that one to two week period, as Dr. Stifelman highlighted. Uh, it's usually delayed to that to that point. So finally, I just want to thank uh, all our panelists and our presenters and uh, all uh, the folks behind the scenes on the coordinating team for music. Thanks for your participation, everyone. I hope it was a valuable experience. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Great, great time. Great time.